My guest is Tom Nichols, uh, author of The Death of Expertise. I'm Rob Trzinski. This is Salon of the Refused. You can find more commentary and analysis at the Trzinski Letter, trzinskiletter.com. Uh, you can like our, our or subscribe to our YouTube channel, subscribe to my podcast, uh, and you can uh, support us at Patreon, patreon.com slash Salon of the Refused. So, Tom, you originally wrote the article, The Death of Expertise, in 2014, and the book came out in 2017. And I think a, a little something happened in between those two dates that may have made it a little more relevant. What are you getting at here, Rob? Was that? <laughs> so what are you getting at here, Rob? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it is interesting um, because one faulty assumption that people have made about the book is that I somehow wrote it as a response to Trump or Trumpism or Brexit or anything. Mm -hmm. uh, as you know, I wrote it um, for, uh, I wrote it as a blog piece, um, which I don't, I actually don't have a blog anymore because I realized that I was becoming part of the problem. Uh, but it was picked up by the Federalist and it was run there and it went viral. And I actually signed the contract with Oxford, I wanna say in like early 2015 before any of this other stuff had happened. Uh, and I really didn't think uh, that it was, I thought, you know, it would be kind of a nice addition to a bookshelf. Um, some folks would read it. It might be reviewed nicely in a few places. I had no idea that it was going to turn into a thing. I mean, it's in, you know, if I can just humble brag for a moment, it's 11 foreign languages at this point. Um, and I think. I don't it, think that's a humble brag. I think that's just a plain brag. That's a brag brag. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm, I, I, I love the uh, humble brag format in real life. Well, I'm hesitant to point this out, but uh, <laughs> no, I'm not hesitant to point it out. It's in 11 foreign languages, which I think is cool. But it's also, to me, very surprising. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess it's, it's more of a problem of the developed world than I thought it was. I mean, I was really surprised. I, I wasn't surprised by the book being hit in Italy for obvious reasons, because of what Italy's going through. I was really surprised when uh, translation contracts were coming from places like Japan and Korea and China, mm. um, where I, I thought, you know, Jap do Japanese universities have tr have problems with really, you know, troublesome uppity students? Mm. Uh, so I, I was definitely taken aback by that, because I also, it also struck me that, oh my God, this is this is a bigger problem than even I thought it was. But it really had very little to do with Trump. Now, you know, the book became more popular, I think, because after Trump, after Brexit, after the five star movement in Italy, uh, after the rise of populism in other parts of Europe, mm -hmm. people uh, were asking, why is this happening? And right. so I think some people turned to the book as kind of I know in Canada, um, when I was doing a lot of talks in Canada, Canadians told me that they felt they were having the same problems in their country, but they were also deeply interested to understand why the election had happened, even though I didn't really talk about the election in any detail. Right. Well, one of the moments from, that stuck out for me when, on this issue was uh, in, I, I don't know if it's late 2015 or early 2016, Donald Trump did an interview where he got a whole bunch of different facts wrong. And there are basically a bunch of people, yeah, and this is about important foreign policy issues and, and uh, you know, who the leaders are and, and, and the nuclear triad and all sorts of things, you know, really important stuff that the president's going to be in charge of. And there was a whole argument that, well, that doesn't really matter. It's not important that he got that wrong. And, and yeah. I, think, I think that it's the idea of unleashing the, you know, there's always, let me put it this way, is, is, but 
the question I have is, is Trump really that much worse? Because politicians have always had a tendency to, you know, go out and say things and try to seem sober and serious and then do whatever they think the voters want or do whatever they think will pander to the right constituency. Has Trump unleashed something that, that's, that's more than that, where he doesn't even feel the need to pretend to listen to the experts? Uh, yes, Trump is that bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, the way I think about uh, it is it used to be you had a, a form of somebody who's running for office. They would go give the populist barn burning speeches. But then they'd also say, do, a, do a talk at the Heritage Foundation where they tried to show that they really knew what they were talking about on the policy issues. And that well, seems I, to have been sort of a thing of the past now. As I always tell my students, uh, I used to call the president's daily brief the oh shit book, right? That, you know, you say all these things in parking lots and, you know, in front of a Walmart about what you're going to do and foreign affairs and, you know, we're going to get even with the bad guys and we're going to solve our And then they come in and they give you the classified stuff on, you know, the really super classified stuff on day one. And the president looks down and goes, oh shit. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a learning curve that presidents go through in office, some faster than others. I don't think, um, you know, um, although people now think that I'm retroactively some huge President Obama fan, um, I thought that, that President Obama's learning curve was relatively flat on foreign affairs because he just wasn't that interested in it. Right, right. Uh, but but he, he made the effort to, you know, actually learn stuff. Um, and there were some bad calls and some good calls, but they were real calls. They weren't just drift and default. And I think that the, the president... I, I'll defend George W. Bush on that. that I think for, for all the bad things people say about him, I did see evidence that he was, he was really trying hard and taking things in. And, and uh, you know, for example, the surge was something he had no idea he needed. You know, the counterinsurgency was something he had no understanding of, no idea he needed to do when he went in. And he was listening to Don Rumsfeld. And, and so... There's a real debate. I yeah. mean, there's a real debate inside that administration among people who knew their stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something else expert. One of my expert science friends tells me not to drink, but I drink it anyway. So one thing I share in common with the president. <laughs> um, but I think the, the president's take, the, the president Trump has taken this really a lot further uh, by saying, um, you know, I just don't need briefings. Um, we, yesterday or a couple of days ago, I, I think Jim Comey, um, you know, who, of course, people who hate Comey will dismiss this, but um, you'll hear it from other folks that have tried to brief Trump, and he just doesn't, he talks, he doesn't listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that his interest in things is mostly how they pertain to his administration to him. Um, that's having briefed several politicians in my life. You know, there are two kinds. There are people who listen and there are people who don't. Um, and, you know, the ones who don't talk a lot and it's, you know, there are narcissistic politicians. I think that's very dangerous in a, in a president of the United States because there are so many issues uh, that require at least some attention to detail. Uh, now, you know, I don't, I'm not arguing that we should go back to Jimmy Carter levels of micromanaging detail, but there has to be something between that and, I, you know, I, I don't know what a nuclear triad is and I don't care because it's not important. Because that, I think, is one of the things where the president has really pushed this over the line to say, not only do I not know about it, but if I don't know about it, it's not worth knowing. Well, I think this gets to something you point you made earlier that when you sort of have this total populism, it and tends to actually default to rule by experts. Because you know, I think I look at our foreign policy and realize that I don't think Trump 
is managing the day-to-day -day details of much of our foreign policy. A lot of that is, you know, maybe John Bolton's doing things and, 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 and Kelly's doing, you know, General Kelly is doing things. The assistant secretaries of state. Right, exactly. It's all, it's all going back to the, to the bureaucrats and the guys, you know, the, the uh, cabinet officers or the, cap, the guys below the cabinet officers. I think, uh, I think I just saw a statistic uh, here in mid-December that as of this point, uh, Pompeo hasn't even filled like four out of six undersecretary slots. Uh, the people who argue that, well, the deep state is thwarting the president, the president owns the deep state. He, he can reappoint people. We are not a term. I, I, in fact, uh, let me put in a plug here for people to stop using that term because yes. the deep state really refers to the way we used to refer to Turkey in the six in the fifties right. or sixties. That, that's where it but, came from. It came from the Turkish. Right. This, this permanent, you know, um, power bureaucracy that couldn't be replaced. The president can replace all of those people tomorrow, and the bureaucracy will go in the direction they steer it. Uh, I think a huge amount. I've said this before. I've I've written about it. I think that a, a, the United States is in kind of zombie mode, mm -hmm. where the bureaucrats and the uh, second or third tier appointed officials are just doing kind of making the paper go around and keeping the lights on because there is no foreign policy. Whenever people ask me what they think of Donald Trump's foreign policy, I, my answer is always to say, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I would have said uh, the same thing about Obama. I think we've been kind of a little rudderless and disengaged really since 2006. I would say that, you know, that was when the American people decided I'm, I've washed my hands of Iraq. I don't care what goes on there anymore. And since then, I, I mean, whenever I write something about foreign policy, it sinks like a rock because nobody wants to talk about it. I, I, you know, it's interesting. I think the one thing you can say about the coherence of Barack Obama's foreign policy is um, that it was coherent and that was bad. Uh, because the Iran deal in particular, I, I think when future histories of the Obama administration foreign policy are written, um, the Iran deal is going to be the tree from which uh, all the other rotten fruit falls. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to not, I don't think we truly understand at this point how many bad things we were doing to keep the Iran deal alive, that we weren't calling out the Russians, we weren't going up against the Chinese, we didn't, uh, we didn't go head to head with the Syrians, because there was one coherent motivating idea, and that is that America should not be in the Middle East, that our influence is bad, that we should scale back our influence and kind of hand it over to regional hegemons, which is a kind of, you know, textbook, graduate student level liberal foreign policy. Right. And you can, you, can argue, you, can, you can argue with whether it was wise, but I think in retrospect, I look back and say, these were people who had a, vi a view and they tried to put that view in, into motion. I think that the place where the, the expert and elite criticism is most powerfully made on Obama is he knew how popular, unpopular that would be with the American people. And so he didn't really tell them. <laughs> you know, he just said, we need to get out of the Middle East. I need to kind of sh offload all this to the Iranians and let the Russians kind of do what they're going to do. And no one's really going to buy that. So I'm just going to kind of not tell them that's what I'm doing. But that does go back to the to the role of the people in this, which is I think the the public he he was able to do that because the public was very disengaged. They decided they didn't want to pay attention to the world right now. And that if if Barack Obama had given a big speech about foreign policy, I don't know that that would have, as you say, you know, these kinds of things after two thousand six landed with a thud. Uh, and I don't think anybody really wanted to hear about a big vision for foreign policy. It was again kind of just make it all go away. 
uh, fix things, you know, get us home, keep the world at bay. And um, I think the disservice that President can't then candidate Trump uh, performed was to go to the American people and say, this is really easy to do. I'll just right. do it. Yeah. I alone can yeah. fix this. And I'll just, but three months in, all this, your problems are over. And, you know, that's, as, as we're learning the hard way, um, you know, maybe we're going to have another summit with North Korea. Um, you know, that, that TV, I think the president thinks that things are just fixable by wanting them, the way powerful rich men think. You know, if I just want it badly enough and I spread enough green around, it'll just get done. Right, and that's right. not how the world works. So you and I are both in the sort of category, you know, I'm not pushing back much on your criticisms of President Trump because you and I are both in the category of being, you know, never Trump people on the right. Uh, basically, the question I have, though, is is what has really happened to never Trump? What direction does it have? I think it's sort of lost a little bit of direction and we're sort of out wandering in the wilderness and sometimes wandering a little randomly. I mean, I'm thinking of people like, I've been a little annoyed by Max Boot recently because, you know, he's a never Trump guy who now says, oh, and I was wrong to ever be on the right in the first place and seems to really not. I think there are some people or, or Jennifer Rubin is a great example of this, where she changed her positions on some things because in order to be on the other side from from Donald Trump. I mean, it was I guess never Trump was always a negative something defined by a negation. Is there a direction on the right that leads in a direction other than Trump that that is active and, and, and having an impact now? That's that's a really interesting question. Um, I I think of um, Max and Jen as as representing two different streams in Never Trump. One is, I think, a perfectly I think in Max's case, it's a perfect and I don't want to obviously I don't speak for Max or okay. Jennifer or anybody else, but I my sense of their writing is like in Max's case, he's saying, look, I was I was wrong to trust the Republican Party, mm -hmm. um, and be, and and I was wrong to trust that the party would come to its senses. If I was wrong about that, what other things that I trusted in the Republican Party are also wrong? And he's going back and saying, "I'm taking an inventory." And this is kind of like the leftists did. I mean, I think of people like David Horowitz, who yeah. went from being crazy leftist to being crazy rightist. <laughs> but David was. You know, there there was a time in the in the seventies and the early eighties when you could see that Horowitz was kind of thinking through. Like, I believed all these things. If I was wrong about that, what else was I wrong about? Right. And I think that's a really healthy inventory. I don't agree with every position Max has kind of one eighty on, but I also I wasn't he a little bit more of a sort of a national security conservative and not as yeah, engaged well, on the other issues. I would argue, you know, and this includes you and others, uh, me and Max. Uh, Bill Crystal, that that the national conservative, excuse me, the national concern, the national security conservatives were the heart of Never Trump, mm -hmm. uh, because that was the place I think where the you you really saw where this is more than just a lark. This is like really really dangerous. Now there were people who were Never Trump, uh, I think, because of they were values conservatives. Um, I think of somebody like Peter Weiner. Right. You know, who says this is not a healthy person. This well, that's been the most dif disappointing category of them, though, because those were the first people to just to, to switch over. I, I would I would say as much as I was a, a national. We should be clear, not Wayne. I mean, he has yeah, been. Yeah, I know he yeah. has stayed course on that. So I think, you know, you have people like Max are saying if I was wrong about this and I was wrong to invest my faith in the party in this, what else was I wrong about? 
I think um, some of the things where I think Ruben's been criticized unfairly uh, is that it's not that we don't want the things that some of the things Trump is doing. We don't want them the way he's determined to get them. Hmm. Okay, that that you know, and I, I again, I grant you, you know, all of the never Trumpers, you know, you know this. We've all had this. We've all had that oppositional defiance issue of, well, Trump says this, it must be bad. <laughs> and I tried to not fall into that, but it um, is a temptation I, sometimes. Pardon? It is a temptation sometimes. I'll admit. Well, because you know the president's personality is such that he says good morning, and you, you're like, what is that? What's up with that? Um, you know, he president's a very confrontational guy. Um, but I think that there is a problem with saying, with people saying, well, don't you want the embassy, you know, move to Jerusalem? The answer is not this way. Uh, don't you want, you know, a, a better relationship with North Korea to lessen the danger? Not, not like this. Right. Um, you know, I mean, that's like saying, you know, do I want safe streets? Well, not by, you know, um, putting cameras on every corner and, you know, having police shoot first and ask questions later. There are things that you want that you can still disagree with because of the way they're being implemented. So I, I tend to think that there are a group of conservatives who, uh, and I think Ruben is more emblematic of that, of the people saying, look, there are a lot of things I would have liked, but I'm, I don't like that it's being done this way. And I think the other thing, and this is, I think this covers a larger group of never Trumpers um, who say, look, anything that legitimizes all of these other compromises is is something we're going to push back against. Um, I, you know, when people say to me, do you object to Neil Gorsuch? No, I don't object to I, I did object to Kavanaugh. Uh, but, you know, do I object to Neil Gorsuch? No, he's a perfect that would have been that would have been the first nomination in a Rubio or a Bush. 45 or whoever. I mean, that's a pretty standard Republican pick. Um, but do I think that therefore I should, I, that I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to let the Gorsuch nomination outweigh this incredible damage to our constitutional system. I had this argument with Hugh Hewitt during the campaign where I said, you can't, getting judges doesn't compensate you for losing all the other rights and for all the other damage to the constitutional norms. They are not comparable. They're not put on the same scale. Well, and, and I argue I by, by the same, by the, if you, by the same argument, the but judges argument, you'd have to uh, excuse everything that uh, Mr. Establishment Mitch McConnell has done because that's been the thing he runs on every, every, every couple of years to become majority leader is, oh, well, judges are the most important thing. And so it's okay if we blow up, blow the budget and we have huge deficits and we, we all the other problems that all the other things we don't do are okay because we voted in judges. And this is really some serious flim flammery. Uh, I, I sound really 19th century saying that, but it's, it's flim flammery, I tell you. Uh, Balderdash. It's Balderdash. It's poppycock. <laughs> uh, because what what that wing of the Republican Party has done is to say, because when they say judges, let's talk about what we really mean abortion. Right. And so they're saying, look, as long as you were anti abortion, that that position makes you so morally good that everything else is excusable. And I think that's ridiculous. Uh, you know, abortion is a tormented subject for any thinking American of conscience on the right or the left. Um, I, I, I always liked the formulation by an old leftist colleague of mine who said something to the effect of um, always a tragedy, sometimes a sin, never a crime. 
I wouldn't even go as far as saying never a crime. Sometimes a crime. Uh, But this notion that um, if you just say, well, you know, it's the Jedi mind trick, abortion. And so, okay, everything else, nothing matters. And I think that that has been a very effective and cheap ploy on the right. Uh, for a long time, and I and I and I think yeah. Trump figured that out, and he sold it. Well, it's something I noticed on the, during the Kavanaugh hearings is that I was pro Kavanaugh, but there was this like almost era of good feelings for a couple of weeks, where all the conservatives were on the same, or most of the, not you, but most of most of us were on the same side again, and like, hey, we got the band back together, everybody's not fighting. But what I found that happened afterwards was this was used as an excuse by a lot of pro-Trump people to say, look, see, you're all happy about Kavanaugh, therefore you have to accept Trump, and never so Trumpers Trump. are irrelevant, and, and I was out of a job a couple of weeks later. Uh, wow. Yeah, I, I don't, not saying it's a direct cause and effect, but there was that sense that because Trump delivered on this one thing, that excuses everything else, and therefore invalidates people who've been criticizing him on all the, on all the other things. And, and in, you know, to... Uh, I, I'm don't know the details of your case, but I think with a lot of people it was, if we can't get you on board with Kavanaugh, then there's no reasoning with you. Exactly. And that was sort of the attitude. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I was not anti-Kavanaugh. In fact, um, I took a lot of static for changing my position because my first reaction was very much a middle-aged guy reaction to say, <laughs> 17 years old, you know, was this is this really that important? And my wife said to me, you know, you're not a woman. If this guy really did attempt to hurt a a girl at 17 years old, that's going to matter to women who have to accept the legitimacy of his positions. Even at that point, I said that therefore it is worth looking into this to determine if this man has this kind of history. If he doesn't, then he's pretty much a standard, you know, again, another kind of standard Republican pick where I defected from Kavanaugh and where I was disappointed that other conservatives did not was in that appalling eruption before the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, where he really did kind of throw the cloak off and say, uh, I am partisan. Um, I will get even with every one of you, um, you know, that I that uh, even though, you know, I and I understood he was charged with something horrible and his emotions were running high. But he wrote that statement out a day before. I mean, he he said what he intended to say. Well, I think after that, I just said, this is not a person whose temperament belongs on the Supreme Court. And the conservatives, when Susan Collins got up there and said, all you peons shut up and get in line because we're the United States Senate and the Republican Party and the Senate are the important institutions in this country. That was when I finally decided I was out. Well, I, I think we could take different interpretations of that. But I think that the national security conservative, you said the national conservative security conservatives or the national security right has been the heart of never Trump. And I think that's the issue that binds most of us together. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask about, which is part of your area of expertise is Russia. What is going on with Russia? I mean, what's, what's the big picture here, which is, I, I, you know, I'm skeptical of the more conspiracy theory-ish views of what collusion consisted of. But there's definitely this sense that Trump is more in line with the geopolitical goals of Russia or more complacent or compliant with them. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what is the situation with Russia? What do they want? What are they trying to do? And how does that connect to our policy or lack thereof? I almost feel like I don't need to make this argument. Anymore. <laughs> you know, six months ago, you would ask questions like, like that. And I would say, well, here's what I think is going to happen. Here's what I think is going to come out. 
based on my background, you know, with, mm -hmm. with Russia. Um, I, I'm almost to the point now when I talk to pro-Trump people about this to say, if this, if you're not there now, you're just never going to get there. I mean, that Mueller could come out with a tape tomorrow, of, you know, like uh, like No Way Out, you know, where the president just starts speaking fluent Russian, uh, you know, and somebody calls him Yuri. Yeah. And people are going to say, oh, well, you know, fake news, the MSM, that's probably an MSNBC thing. Um, look, I, I wrote a piece a while back about something Jonathan Chait wrote where I, I said, because um, Chait basically did a big piece where he said, Trump is, you know, an agent of the Russian Federation. And I said, that's just not right. Um, but I think Chain connected a lot of dots that were, were correct. So what I think is this. I, I think the Russians invested a lot of time and attention in Donald Trump over the course of 30 years. They did what uh, regimes like that do. They played to his ego. They pulled him into a lot of really shady financial deals uh, that compromised him legally and financially and made him dependent on their goodwill. Um, you know, there's a way that people can get you to betray things where you don't even think you're doing it. You think you're just being a friend. You think you're just being a good guy. Um, you know, that's really what people have this very um, Hollywood image of what co being compromised looks like, that someone walks in and says, you know, they throw the eight by tens on your desk or <laughs> you know, hold up the tape record and they say, now you will, you know, you are, you belong to us, you know. Um, and instead it's, I think for, for a lot of people, it's much more subtle They say, you know, help us help you to help your country. Right. Help, help us, to, you know, you're, you're just like this, this um, thing that just came out a few days ago where Felix Satter says to one of the Trump uh, folks, we'll, we'll make a lot of money and make the world more peaceful at the same time. Isn't that great? And um, and so I think that the president um, has all these things in mind. I think that's made him terrified. First of all, I think he did not level with the American people during the election, which I think is huge. Uh, about, even, the, about the deals he had going on with Russia. About the deals. I'm not even talking about the pe Look, the president's been implicated. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to say the president's guilty or not guilty of anything. It seems to me as a lay person, the president's been implicated in at least two felonies. Um, with the, the the campaign finance stuff. I am leaving all that aside. The president during the campaign was not honest with the American people about the depth uh, of his contacts with Russia or his agenda with Russia, financially or personally. He, since then, um, he I think that his White House has not been honest about the degree of interaction between the campaign and after the campaign with agents of the Russian Federation. And I think it's because the president is, I think after the Helsinki summit, it should have been clear, the president's pretty afraid of Vladimir Putin and what Putin could reveal about him financially, that he's not really a billionaire, that he really is, you know, the king of debt, that um, I, don't, I don't think it's anything as salacious as sex. The president clearly does not have a lot of, does not seem to be bothered by revelations of what his personal. Um, <laughs> But I think that, you know, there's a lot about the money here that is that the president does not want to come out. And I think that there are a lot of people who have compromised themselves by having conversations with Russians that if I had them, I would have called the FBI. Right. Um, you know, these are these are you don't when someone calls and says, I have dirt on your opponent. You don't say, hey, I would take that meeting. You call the FBI and you say, listen, a foreign national has called me and tried to insert himself into our elections. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. 
and none of that happened. So I, I think that, and now I think what's, what's actually happened is the Russians were victims of their own success. I don't think they ever expected things to get this far. I think they vastly overestimated the intelligence of the people around the president himself. Um, I think they, they had the president's number. I think they were are just, you know, when you really look at this, you know, guys like Paul Manafort and General Flynn and others, you know, it's just astonishing. Um, so I think the Russians thought that they were doing this initially to undermine a future Hillary Clinton presidency. Right. They kind of went along for the ride because it was like it was a laugh. It was a, it was a great gig. And now I think they're they're kind of done with him and saying, you know, we're tired of having our networks exposed. We're tired of having our connections put under spotlight. We're tired of not knowing who to deal with in the United States about important stuff that we want to get done. Um, and I think that this is, I think that the pro-Trump people who are still holding on to, this is all just a big deep state conspiracy and it's a lot of nonsense being put together by the mainstream media. Um, I don't know how they sustain the caloric expenditure that that level of a suspension of disbelief requires. And I think it's just going to get harder in the next few months. Well, I think we also, you know, we can remember from the Cold War how the Russians did it, that it was not just, the operation wasn't just about compromising individual people, but it was also there was an ideological element. And I think that's the thing that disturbs me the most is the extent to which nationalism as an ideology has come to the fore. Uh, and that there's, there's sort of a sympathy for the, the way Vladimir Putin, Putin is doing things in his own country is a model or is a, you know, a good model for how we should be doing things here, that we should have our identity as a Christian country and, and, and that sort of thing, and that the, the nationalistic approach. And that raises, I think, the, the question I want to end on, which is, what's the alternative? Where do we go from here in terms of re, sort of restoring the right uh, to what it traditionally was, or is that even possible? Uh, I don't know if it's possible. Um, I think, you know, the, the way the Russians have, have uh, pursued this, it almost makes me miss the old Soviet Union because they had a very distinct ideology. They pushed it um, very, uh, quite literally, uh, and it made it easier to deal with them because their ideology was such um, risible bullshit. And it was uh, so alien. I, it was so alien to all American traditions, just, right? Yeah. You know, uh, you know, we're work with us. We are creating a classless society of great bureaucrats. No, no, thank you. I had enough of that. Um, but, uh, this pushing of nationalism is meant, you, you also have to remember the Russian regime is a mafia. And so anything that makes other regimes sink to the level of the Russian regime is good for them because it makes them be able to push the line that they are normal. That right. they are just like any other regime in the world. Well, I think specifically they want to push the idea that all the stuff about liberal democracy it is an illusion. It's a lie. It's just, what everybody needs is a is a uh, anti-gay, pro-Christian, anti-Muslim, state state capitalist strongman. Right. Uh, which you know is kind of where where we've been headed for a few years here. Um, where the right goes after this is really a hard call because I think one thing that the right could do to reclaim its uh, heritage as a truly conservative movement and one place where it is in direct opposition to the Trumpers is to start from the principle of limited government. The, you know, the, the conservative movement such that it is that, that, that was co-opted by the Republican Party, which was in turn co-opted by Trump, is just as statist and just as leader-centric as the Democratic Party and the leftist movement. 
you know, the, that um, there was there's a professor, a liberal professor at Columbia named Mark Lilla, who in his criticism of Obama said, liberals need to get past the idea that the president is daddy. Uh, well, conservatives have gladly picked that up and said the president is big daddy. He's the, you know, he's the, he's the boss. He's the guy that solves everybody's problem. That is a fundamentally unconservative view mm-hmm. to, to, to regard not just the national government, but the executive branch of the national government as the source of all solutions to problems in American life. So I think if Republicans could get back to the idea that the things that, re, that unite us as, as conservatives, I shouldn't say Republicans as conservatives because I'm, I'm just done with the Republicans. But the thing that could unite conservatives is a fixed idea of human nature. This is someplace where we disagree with liberals. We don't think human nature can be remade by wise policy. Um, we take the, you know, the founders approach that you institute government because men are not angels. Um, so we, we start from this fixed notion of human nature, limited government, uh, patriotism rather than nationalism. That is, you love your country because of what your country is, not where it's located or, or who's controlling its DNA. Um, I took a lot of crap for saying that nationalism is basically the worship of a chromosome, but it is. Um, patriotism and nationalism. Patriotism is love of country for an idea because well, I, of what your country stands I, for. Yeah, I and like- nationalism is love of country because of who was born there. Well, I like to point out that if we had been nationalists, we would have stayed. We would never have become an independent country because our national identity was we were British. Uh, I remember a student asking me many years ago. Uh, we were talking about the, you know, the American Revolution and whether or not victory was inevitable. And the student said, "Well, of course, of course, Americans were going to throw off British oppression. What would it even have looked like if we had chosen not to do that?" And there was this kind of silence in the room for a minute where somebody leaned over and said, "Canada." <laughs> You know, it's like, we did have another option. I said, you know, the queen is still on their money. Yeah. Uh, had this other option. Um, but I, I think that nationalism, and I, I don't, I, I really think that the, the conservatives, some of the guys at National Review and a few other places who have said, you know, let's think about nationalism. It's not such a bad thing. Yes, it is. I mean, we've killed, uh, we've killed a good, you know, nationalism rivals communism for sheer body count. At this point, uh, from the 20th century onward, and um, while you know there were people who have challenged me by saying, "Well, nationalism brought down the Soviet Union." Yes, it, yes, nationalism helped to bring down the Soviet Union. And how's that? You know, the Soviet Union's gone. I'm glad for that. But how's that nationalism thing now working out in the former Soviet areas? Not so good. I mean, we, you know, mm-hmm. we, I don't want this to be remembered as the interwar period. <sighs> Like there, there's that relative time of peace from 1991 to the early 21st century yeah. and the, the worship of nationalism. I think the sooner conservatives rise against that and to say what we care about is the Constitution, the rule of law, limitations on government, basic human freedom, yeah. uh, both at home and abroad. You know, we used to be all about freedom uh, and instead of, you know, the, that um, that the great father in Washington will solve all of our problems. But that's that that there has to be a schism in the Republican Party and on the right. And then there has to be a similar shaking out, something we talk about another time because it's long to a similar shaking out on the left. Right. Well, you know, I, I do take heart from one thing, which is I just saw an article uh, I think it was in the Atlantic, 
uh, someone on the left hyperventilating about all the emergency powers that have been granted to the president over the years. And I am thinking, you know, a lot of these were things that were given to him by legislation passed by Democrats because they wanted to be able to do something and let's give emergency power to the president to do it. And now because the wrong guy has the emergency power, they're against it. I'm kind of take heart from the hope that something similar like that will, that will happen on the right, that that will rediscover the virtues of limited government when a Democrat, when Bernie Sanders is president, will rediscover the virtues of limited government and individual rights and limiting the power of government. Well, if we can if we can work in one more movie reference, all I can say to to the Democrats on that is welcome to the party, pal. Uh, <laughs> you know, that for years, uh, um, you know, Republicans were increasing the strength of we're going along with increasing the strength of the executive branch because Democrats were more than happy to do it because they never thought there would be a day when progressive Democrats weren't in power. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the past 20 years, I think you look at people like Harry Reid and Barack Obama, and they governed as though nobody else was ever going to govern in their place. And uh, if, if that, you know, if part of the outcome of the Trump era is that Democrats have rediscovered things like federalism, uh, you know, the importance of local control. I mean, it's really great to hear people saying, well, you know, I'm in California and we'll never go along with those federal regulations. And I sit back and say, well, you know, if that's what it took to make you understand the importance of having a state capital. Uh, then, you know, I suppose there's one positive thing that comes out of it. Well, I think this is the system working as it's supposed to, that everybody is you know, when when the other side gets power, everybody has an interest suddenly in reigning in that power. And hopefully that that will continue to 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 keep us from sliding too far. Well, my guest today has been Tom Nichols, the author of The Death of Expertise. Uh, and uh, thanks so much, Tom, for coming to talk with me. It was great to see you again, Rob. Thanks for having me. I'm Rob Trasinski. This is Salon of the Refused. Uh, again, you can find more commentary at and analysis at the Trasinski Letter, TrasinskiLetter.com. Uh, you can also uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel, subscribe to the podcast, and support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Salon of the Refused. Thank you for listening.